The content in this podcast should not be taken as medical advice. The information, opinions and discussions in this podcast are for informational purposes only. As each person's situation is different, please consult your healthcare professional with any medical questions. Welcome to the Healthy AF Podcast. I'm April Love, former beauty queen, model and lawyer turned startup entrepreneur. This podcast explores living with hereditary angioedema or HAE, a condition which I myself have been diagnosed with. Each episode will share stories from myself and others and interviews with health professionals and thought leaders in the space. I want to help those living with this condition know they are not alone. Thanks for spending some time with me today and let's get healthy AF. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the Healthy AF podcast. I'm your host April Love and on today's episode we're talking to a very special guest, Janice Stratum. She's the chairman of HAE South Africa and Patient Voices Ambassador at Rare Diseases South Africa. Uh, For those of you who don't know, I met Janice through a Facebook support group for HAE and I'm actually very grateful for meeting her because whether you know it or not, uh, you actually inspired me to research my condition more and uh, start this podcast. So welcome. Thank you, April. Thank you for having me. You're most welcome. So Janice, I wanted to talk to you about your HAE journey. Um, When did you have your first attack? So I was 15 years old when I had my first attack and it was actually an attack of my hands. Um, And I must say that I realized quite soon on that something wasn't right because I was diagnosed that same day with a spider bite. And the next morning I woke up and I had another swollen hand. So it did seem a little bit odd that I would have been bitten by a spider on both hands. So I think that I did have a sense right from the beginning that that this was something different. Um, I then had attacks periodically after that. So it was hands and feet and the back of my knees would swell that I couldn't bend my legs. Um, I had a couple of, of face uh, facial swells, but not uh, nothing that would be fatal, so not anything in the airway. And then on my 16th birthday, I actually had my first tummy attack, which was incredibly painful. It's probably still to this day the, the worst pain, any tummy attack I've ever had. It's the worst pain I've ever felt. Um, and that was actually followed by a succession of constant attacks for the next four years. So my mother had taken me around to many, many doctors. I mean, I can't even count anymore. I've lost count of how many doctors we went to. And eventually a group of specialists decided to send me to the South African Institute of Medical Research. And I was eventually diagnosed again on a, a special day because it was my 21st birthday. And my mother came to me and she said to me that um, we found a, a, a diagnosis. And she gave me this very long name, which was was hereditary angioedema. And as I've mentioned to you before, it was actually a really bittersweet occasion for me because I was given that name of, of what I had. But after that, there was nothing else. So... There was no internet then for me to go and do any research. I was put onto a a synthetic steroid called uh, Danazol, which is available in some of the countries and not available in the others. It's it's not the greatest drug to have to take because, especially for a woman, obviously, being a synthetic steroid, it has all sorts of side effects. But I made the decision in conjunction with a specialist that 
the risk that I was taking having attacks all the time and still being at school was difficult for me. I was studying as well. After that, I was at varsity. Um, it was easier for me to take something and to live with the side effects than it was for me to to continue with the, the HAE attacks the way they were. So if I'm not on medication, I have attacks probably about two to three times a week. Currently, we have no emergency medications available in, in South Africa. So everything that we have brought in has to be brought in by approval of our health department. And our doctors need to bring them in on a named patient basis. They're obviously extremely expensive. So we're not able to attack to, to treat attacks that are anything except above the shoulders. So I will just endure face, hand, um, stomach, feet, unless it's we feel that it's going into my throat and it's going to be fatal, um, we, we will use. I have one vial of, of Ecatabant. And obviously when that one's finished, I, I need to apply to get another one. So, unfortunately, we're a little bit behind with, with our drugs at the moment. Um, but, yes, I think that that after that, I spent, um, from the time that I was 21, I eventually got involved in HAE South Africa in 2017. And in 2018, I was invited to go into the HAE International Conference in Vienna. And that was the stage. At that time, it was from 21, I was 21 when I was diagnosed, and that was when I was 48, and that was the first time that I met this group of other HAE patients that finally understood what I was going through. Yeah, wow. So when you first had your attack at 15 and then you had an attack again at 16 and then recurrent for a couple of years, like, was it like every yeah. week or was it once a month or was it like, did it, what was the time frame between these uh, attacks? So April, it varied. Sometimes I would have an attack every second week. Sometimes it would be every week. And sometimes I would go for a month mm. or two at a time without an attack. So my attacks are very much stress related. And I did realize that also very soon on because it was, occasions such as before exams and I think the thing that people often don't realize when we talk about stress is that it's also not necessarily the bad stress also we have good stress mm. so things like being invited to functions weddings and special occasions um, I would often end up with an attack just beforehand that I wouldn't be able to go wow okay and and you said that your attacks move to different places did that happen immediately or did that happen over time? Like was it just in your hands and feet, of, you know, to start with for a couple of years or it just it just kept moving around? So once it started, so at, at 15, between, that, between the, that, that year of 15 and 16, it was my extremities. And then from my 16th birthday, that first tummy attack, that was when my attacks exacerbated. And also because for a lot of, of women, they are exacerbated by estrogen. So I think that as I was maturing mm -hmm. and my estrogen levels were, were going up, so my attacks were increasing. And I actually had numerous occasions where I ended up in, in ICU with, with near fatal attacks because... As I say, we didn't have treatment and I would get into these emergency wards. And of course, these symptoms mimic allergies. So doctors would treat me with all sorts of things that they normally use to treat allergies. And of course, these weren't working. And as they were trying all these different things, so time was passing, 
I was also realizing at that stage that these things weren't working. So I was panicking and that stress would exacerbate the attack. Of course. So it was a very, very stressful time for me because, you know, as I say, I realized that something serious was wrong. And I also, you know, you don't realize until you actually live through this that actually just about any part of your body can swell. Yeah. So there was a time, even after I was diagnosed, that I would have these tummy attacks and the doctors would put me into hospital and do all sorts of invasive testing because they were convinced I had an ulcer, Mm. which I think actually happens with a lot of HAE patients. I know a few that have actually had... Had have have surgery to have things things removed. Normally, appendix. They'll take out your appendix because yeah. it mimics appendicitis. So yes, I think just a very. Um, it started hands, and then it just hit me my whole body. Yeah, because for me, um, they said that mine was a bit of an anomaly because usually HAE attacks can go anywhere. But mine predominantly, I would say 99% of the time, only occur in my hands. I have, you know, maybe had a couple, one or two, a few years ago happen in my feet, like you said. And then my abdominal attack, I'm not sure 100% if it was was an HA attack or not, I guess, because I'd never had one. But I remember it feeling like um, it was, I felt like I had food poisoning or something, really excruciating pain in my tummy. They'd sent me to a um, gastroenterologist. Then I had to get a colonoscopy, I think, or uh, something, something like that. One of those ones, endoscopy maybe. Yes. A gastroscopy, they normally do a gastroscopy, yes. Yes, gastroscopy. And then the um, and gastroenterologist was like, well, th- well there's nothing there's nothing like in there that we found. So um, can you tell us what does it feel like for an abdominal attack? What does that actually feel like? So I think, April, the, the problem that you're talking about is common for all of us because obviously, even though we have hereditary angioedema, we're also human. So we also do get food poisoning from time to time. And we may get constipation or we might eat something that bloats our stomach. So it's very difficult to tell an HAE attack apart from a normal thing that would happen to to somebody who doesn't have HAE. But I normally find that they start lower down in my stomach and then they feel, it it just feels like an uncomfortable pain, almost like a, a period pain. And it will just increase and spread upwards into my stomach. And I normally, just above my belly button, get a little lump and I know that when mm. I've got that little lump, that that's probably normal. That's it's probably swelling. So it's incredibly painful, uh, nausea, vomiting, upset tummy, and normally um, with the more severe mm. ones, you'll have a, a certain amount of of distension of your stomach. It's good that we're talking about this because it's interesting um, with your experience and having had it for so long. I want to talk about markers, like, you know, patterns or markers that can help you tell when you're having an attack or going to have an attack. Um, I know we talked about this very briefly, but for me, I have something silly, which is like, I, if because it, it happens in my hands, I generally feel that it starts to get tight and yes. um, my partner will attest to this. He'll tell me to stop doing it, but I open and close my hand, like just to, it's almost like to test whether or not it's getting further or if the, the swelling is getting, um, you know, 
like it's spreading, it's getting tighter. <laughs> I put my hand on a flat surface and I feel like a bump. Is it there's something like this that you do for your attacks? So, so let me just give you a little warning about bending it like that all the time. You're actually going to make it worse if it has oh, stopped no. as well. <laughs> but, but yes, I, I do do the same thing. If I, you know, if you take your hand and you put it onto a flat surface, it feels like there's a lump. And, you know, when you stand, you can feel it feels like you've got a little bubble on the bottom of your foot. Um, yes. I, I have this really odd thing of getting the swelling behind my knees. So I go, I bend down and I can actually feel that my, my knees don't want to bend properly. But I just want to mention something that I think is very much neglected when it comes to, to the symptoms and the signs. And I think that those are the the emotional things more than than anything else so you know I think when people have rare diseases we focus a lot we spend a lot of time focusing on finding doctors and what is this and what causes it and how do we treat it and we don't often give a lot of attention to the to the emotional impact and I've actually Mm. found that I can pinpoint my attacks a lot more from an emotional perspective yeah so because they're very much exacerbated by stress, when I'm anxious, I get this feeling that I can probably never explain to anybody, but it's I feel irritable, I feel emotional, and it is actually something that my family can notice. So it's significant enough that other people can see that it's happening. And for many years, I actually didn't realize that that was a precursor for my attacks. Until I went on the conference in, in, in Vienna in 2018, and we were talking about this, and I suddenly realized that there were all these things, em, emotions that I was feeling before an attack. So those are things that, that, that I recognize, and I normally try to, one of the things that I do is try to control my stress and anxiety. So I'm on a, a, a tranquilizer and an antidepressant, which I find definitely helps. And then I am one of yeah. probably about, I think there's about 25% of patients who actually get a rash before they start swelling. So it looks like a oh. little lace, like a lacy worm that I get. Oh, I've had that before. Yes, that's that's an HAE rash. You can go and look that no. up. Oh, wow. I did never knew. That's very good to know because, yeah, it, on my hands sometimes, it's like, um, I don't know how to explain it, but. It's like a little red line that's kind of uh, that's yeah yeah lace I guess lacy yes. like you said yeah yes it looks lacy yeah so you can normally see it if you turn your if you look on the inside of your wrist where your skin is light it normally shows so I can see it on the top of my hand near my thumb um, on my wrist so my forearm the inside of my forearm and on my chest oh I can often see it on my chest that's a really good I didn't know that I just never knew what that was I was just kind of always like oh okay maybe I thought it was a heat rash or something you know no that's your HAE oh but then sometimes it doesn't um actually swell up like sometimes I might have that rash and you know it sometimes it goes away like is that does it always it does. swell or it does but april that's actually typical of an attack because you'll notice that sometimes when your hands swell your thumb will start swelling and then it'll go down yes. and sometimes your thumb will start swelling and two fingers next to it will swell and sometimes your whole hand will swell and i've had swellings where my forefinger will start and it'll swell right up to my arm to the top of my arm 
Yeah. So the problem with HAE, the difficulty with HAE is it's so unpredictable. You know, when a tax starts, you can't say, well, this is probably, you know, this is what's going to happen. This is what I'm in for. It's, it's always a box of smarties. You never know what you're going to get. Yeah. And this is why I love, I'm so glad I met you. I love talking to you because every time I talk to you, I just, I learn something new. And it seems like we must have a, a sort of like a similar, because they said to me that, um, I'm part of the 25% that's not hereditary. So it kind of just happened. Yes. Um, but yes. yeah, it's just, it's so great talking to you because I, yeah, I, I used to, I have that, that red little line that I sometimes see and sometimes, you know, it might swell and then it will go down and then it will go somewhere else. And sometimes it will, the, the best case scenario is it goes down completely without treatment. Worst yes. case is it swells and then, you know, it'll go down and I'll be like, yay, but then it'll moments later or an hour or two later. It'll my just start hand. somewhere else. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So you, you, that, the, the 25, you, 25% is a, a genetic mutation mm. of, of a gene that calls, uh, that causes hereditary angioedema. I have um, HAE type one. So my granny had it and she passed it on to my dad and my dad passed it on to myself and my brother. Okay. And then I guess, um, you know, potentially you would pass that on. It's They said it's 50-50, 50-50 chance you would pass that on if you end up having children. That's right. So I, I do have children. There's, there, there is a, it's, you're quite right, it's a 50% chance. I have two daughters and thankfully neither of my children inherited it from me. Uh, my brother has twins and he has a little boy and a little girl and the little girl has inherited it. And how old was she when they found out? Well, we knew, obviously, that, that we had it. So we waited until she was about seven and then we had her tested because generally with type one that is exacerbated by estrogen, a lot of us have, well, certainly for, for in my family, it was around puberty. So I actually said to my mm -hmm. sister-in-law, I think it's a good, a good idea to test both of them so that at least we can be prepared by the time that they get there and, and the attacks start. But, I mean, there, we have patients who have children that start as young as infants with swelling. And what's the test like? So for those that are listening and are curious about this, actually, I was at the dentist today and the dentist was telling me that her daughter is only, I think, in, she's in, in high school, um, and is having severe abdominal pain and no one can diagnose her. And um, I kind of mentioned, you know, you know, you might want to look into this because this is something that goes undiagnosed or misdiagnosed for a long time. Um, but then I couldn't tell her what the test was. Um, yes. what, what test do you have to tell somebody to look for? So bearing in mind, I'm not a medical um, professional. Yes. Um, they test for C4 and then they test for... C1 esterase inhibitor. Now, if you have low levels of, of those two, you would generally be a type 1. Then they test for um, active levels of, of C4 and C1. Oh, sorry, C1. And that would be type 2 because type 2 people have levels that are normal, but it's inactive. So it, it, it doesn't work. And then you have HAE type 3, which have normal levels of C1. So it's actually quite a difficult thing to, to diagnose. Um, but as I say, I'm not a, a medical professional yeah. and, and she would have to go to an immunologist and he would be able to give her 
the correct testing for that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I did. I did. At least I think I at least said to her, <laughs> look for the C one inhibitor deficiency. Yes. But yes, agree. Yes. Um, uh, she she will have to go to an immunologist because yeah, we're not providing medical advice, just our experiences. No. <laughs> um, having said that, I want to know you've you've been living with it for for some time. How do you then manage working? I guess full time or doing other things. You know, like you said, got managing school. How how do you go about managing that over, over the time that you've had it? You know, April, it's a state of mind. So, you know, I can tell you, as you say, I've had it for so many years, and I've had it. I've had hundreds of attacks. I've lost count. But every time I feel that feeling that we're talking about, you know, I put my hand down and I feel that little lump under my hand. I go through what you know, these these the five stages of 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 um, of there's denial and anger and bargaining and depression and then acceptance because I have to yeah. live with this. So I don't have a choice. I'm either going to say, and I mean, I realized this probably in my late, probably in my early 30s, that this was the way it was going to be. So I needed to accept that that was yeah. my normal and that I was either going to lie in bed all day and not do anything or I was going to to go through my five stages of denial and then just um, accept that this is what I was going to, to, to live with. So I do try to manage my stress, as I said, um, mm. because obviously that's my, my trigger. So, so that's the first thing. And I think that if you can if you can identify and, ma- and manage your triggers that's the most important thing because that will certainly do a little bit to alleviate your attacks but it's never going to stop them completely so I know that when I've got uh, my hand starts to swell there's certain things that I, I won't do so I do I, I do have to cancel certain th- certain things I can still go to work but you know I obviously yeah. try not to put myself in situations where I'm going to be, have to be using my hand all the time. You know, I also struggle with things yeah. like traveling because sitting on an airplane all the time um, obviously causes swelling. So they're just things that you need to prepare for. And I wake up every morning and I can tell you that I probably think about my HAE a hundred times a day because I wake up in the morning and I think, what am I doing today? And I plan what I'm going to wear according to what I'm doing because if I'm going to be walking for an hour or two in a mall I know that I need to wear comfortable shoes because if I'm going to wear a pair of my high heels mm-hmm. I'm going to end up with swollen feet um, and and things that other people never think about sitting in a meeting I try to adjust my weight on my body so that I don't have my whole body weight sitting on on the middle all the time or on one side on the left or right all, all the time because that causes swelling so I shift my weight from side to side um, little things like sitting with my legs crossed I make sure that I don't sit with my legs in one way for a certain for too long because obviously it causes swelling so it's something that I think you you learn to to live with and you learn to adjust eventually yeah that's just like it's just amazing exactly what you said I feel like I definitely go through those stages where (laughs) you know I I I know that it's going to happen I know I have to live with it I still get upset I still get deflated um, you know, my partner can attest to it. He, yes. he, you know, is very good. He's very supportive. And he says to me, like, we know that this is, you know, something we're going to have to live with. So you can't be, I mean, not, not that you can't be upset about it, but you know, you've got to persevere because we're going to go through this, not just today, but again and again and again. 
Um, and then, you know, eventually I accept it and I just kind of do exactly all the things that you, you say. And the thing is, it's, it's very true. Um, it's things that people don't ever have to think about, you know, like the shoe thing. I think about that too. Sometimes I'm like, oh, if I wear heels for too long, am I going to, you know, wake up with swollen feet tomorrow? (laughs) You know, like if I get on an airplane and travel really far, is that going to trigger it? And, you know, I guess there's a big aspect of mental health that I want to probably in another episode um, definitely discuss because what you said is like all the things that I think about as well all the time. Yeah, so it's 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 very draining. It is, and that, that's why I say it. It is like it's it's a, it's grief because you're diagnosed with it, and it's just a cycle because it never goes away. And every time it happens, those stages of grief start all over again. But, you know, I've noticed we were talking about Facebook. I've noticed often on the social media sites that people, when they're first diagnosed, are incredibly despondent and wondering how, how, mm. how can I ever live with this? And it's so confusing because there's no information and a lot of people don't have emotional support and a lot of people don't have other people that they can talk to that understand what they're saying. Um, one of the things that was so phenomenal for me going on conference was meeting all these people and finally having someone who actually understood what, what, what I was saying. You know, to tell someone, um, I can't come to work today or I can't come to your function or your dinner because I've got a swollen hand or my feet are swollen. Yeah. You know, there's there's a lot of embarrassment that comes with that because people don't understand it. Only someone with HAE can yeah. understand that. So I think, yeah, I'm, I'm right with you on, on the emotional aspect. I think that it is something that we really need to focus on because I think that it is a a lot of people take a lot of strain trying to live with this and not being able to navigate it from the time that they're diagnosed until until the the end of their lives. What was what was it like when you went to this conference and you after you know you said you'd lived for this was it 40 47 or something that you'd first first time you'd ever met another person with it were you just well I would have been really emotional. (laughs) It, it was. It was terribly emotional. It was the most draining three days of my life because there was all this information that I was was listening to and there were so many things that I had actually never realized were related to, to, to my HAE and specifically from an emotional perspective. My husband was sitting next to me and they were, ta- they were saying certain things about mood changes and he was looking at me because you know we were actually looking at each other because it was something that we had experienced as a, as, as a family. You know, my my daughters will will be a mile away from me, and I'll hear them say to one another, "Mommy's swelling," <laughs> because it 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 has a it has a, a terrible emotional effect. And I think that we also need to be cognizant of the emotional effect that it has on our partners and our families. Yeah, because they need to deal with that too. So I'm I'm a hundred percent on the same page with as you. I think that um. The emotional and the, the, the psychological effects definitely need more more focus. I can only imagine what you must have felt like because for me, when I met you, on well, when I found the Facebook group to start with, uh, you know, it only took like 33 years of my life to, to, to think to myself, well, maybe there's a Facebook group of people out there yeah. and when I found you and you started talking to me about you know what you were going through and how I was like wow that's the same thing I'm going through you were the first person that I found I was mm. just like so I was just beyond beside myself I was like oh my gosh yeah. there is someone else out there <laughs> with this yeah. <laughs> yes 
it's an amazing feeling of relief. And as I say, it was in those those three days on conference were just so emotional for me because I did. I had I cried some days because it's like finding family. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you you go all this time not knowing anybody. And I mean, I remember sitting at the back of that conference center, looking at the sea of people, thinking this is impossible. Where did you all come from? And where, where have you all been all my life? Bearing in mind that they're from all over the world. Mm. Um, you know, the incidence of, of HAE is only one in 50,000. We've got currently only 104 patients diagnosed that we know about in South Africa um, out of a population of 60 million people. Yeah, that's so, so small. We, it's very small. We're missing a lot of patients. Yeah. So then in terms of treatment, I know you said that in South Africa, it's it's quite hard to access it. Um, so I guess then generally it is okay. This is like not medical advice again, obviously, but it's generally okay yes. for your extremities to let it, let the swell happen in that case, because you want to save the medication for very serious attacks, like maybe a throat swell or something internal. Right. Yeah. Right, so we don't we don't treat um, tummy attacks either. Oh, so it'll only be we only do we only treat above the shoulders. Uh, you know, it's this it's discomfort. You know, it's sore and you know what it's like. It hurts and mm. it's not comfortable and it's inconvenient. But unfortunately, at the moment, um, as I say, they're not approved in South Africa, and they're also very expensive when we do import them in. Um, our healthcare in South Africa, if you're not on some kind of private health care is, is completely inadequate to be able to cover the prices of medications like that. So it's something that we just, we live with. And it's something that I've learned to, to live with. And we've got mm. numerous patients. We have families who have four people in a family diagnosed with it. You actually in, in, handle it incredibly well. Wow. Um, young children that, that handle it because it's the way that their parents have, have posed this whole thing to them that this isn't a death sentence and that you can still live your life. And like I said, it's a mindset. You just need to be able to to manage it as best as you can. Yeah. Are there then any non-medication um, things that you do? So, for example, sometimes I, I, I try, I don't know if it 100% helps, but I do, I meditate, try and reduce my stress levels. Um, you know, I, I, I know that food is not necessarily um, linked to it. Like I think I was speaking to Dr. Um, the immunologist, Connie Catalaris, and she did say that food doesn't really trigger, in some patients it does like spicy food or, or heavy meal. Yes. Um, but, you know, for me personally, I try to meditate, I try to reduce any inflammatory foods, just anything basically to help, <laughs> to help it, you know, what I think might help it go down. Is there anything that you do like that? I definitely don't find that food is a trigger for me, but definitely stress. So for me, exactly as you say, meditation, I need to try and control my stress, which is sometimes obviously very difficult when you've got all these things to do. And I think also being working in a support group is very stressful because I'm dealing with patients. You know, I feel that pain when people come to us and they, they've just had a diagnosis and they desperate because I was there and I know what it feels like. So dealing with that stress as well also, you know, I've found that I can directly relate that. Sometimes some of the interactions I have with new patients will will, will cause an attack mm. in myself. But stress relief for me is is the biggest thing, aside from yeah. from obviously any medications that I can get. 
here in Australia, we're very, we are very fortunate, to be honest, to have access to medication. Um, and I think it, it like the government um, is very good about it. They wanted um, me because I've been tracking my attacks to go on potentially prophylactic treatment, and you know that that requires a needle subcutaneously every two weeks. It's prophylactic, so that so you can kind of. I think they said it, it, it works differently to what's out there, like the Icataban and the Berinode. It works differently in the sense that I think they said it just stops the attack much further up. Does that mean you guys don't have that just yet? No, we don't have that. So we have the dan- the, the, the Danazole, which is the yeah. synthetic steroid, which, which we can take. We also have some young patients on tranexamic acid, which I find uh, doesn't work for me. Um, yeah, so the, the, the preventative medication for us is the steroids. Yeah. Okay. Wow. I really wish that, um, yeah, we, there's something can be done in South Africa to, you know, help move that along or, or just get like, make it more affordable or make it, you know, like easier to access. Cause you know, I can, but here in Australia, like whenever I have my attacks, I try not to actually inject myself for all attacks. I don't know if, um, if, yes. if this is an actual thing, but I don't want my body to get used to the the injection. And secondly, I've spoken to you in the past. And so I try to let um, the swelling, if I can stand it, like just let it do its thing naturally. And then it'll, it'll go down eventually in a couple of days. Right. So we are working at getting um, access to, to or easier access to, to medications and cheaper pricing to, to medications. We don't have a lot of knowledgeable doctors on HAE in South Africa, but the few that we do have are extremely knowledgeable and very, very helpful. And they are, mm. are they, we've made strides, we've made good progress in the last two years. We can get, so currently I can get a catabant and I can get Rucanest, but obviously it's limited access and, and, and very expensive, but we have made progress. And obviously the whole point of HAE South Africa and our doctors and the pharmaceutical companies all working together is to speed up access for us to be able to get drugs. Yeah, absolutely. What else do you guys, what do you do for um, HAE awareness in South Africa? So apart from the advocate advoc- advocacy for, for medication and, and access? So as I said to you, we, are only, we only know of 104 diagnosed patients out of the 60 million so we're missing about 100 we are putting a lot of emphasis on awareness and education of doctors and then obviously the the, the public in general to try and locate those patients because as you and I know they're suffering they don't know what's wrong with them Um, potentially people are losing their lives going to um, emergency rooms and people not knowing what's wrong with, with them so we are busy on a on awareness drive at the moment for the next year um Secondly, obviously, access to medication because that's it's, it's lacking. But we've made great strides, but we, we, we have a while to go. And then thirdly, patient navigation. So, you know, as we've discussed that, that period for me between the 21, my, uh, 21 age of being diagnosed and then 48 sitting at a conference, um, th- there were a lot of, of things that I... That, that journey that I missed, mm. uh, I had no support along that time. So we are trying to help patients from the time that they come to us, to, to HAE South Africa, from to then refer them to a doctor. We then, obviously, they get their diagnosis and the doctor will give them a treatment plan. Yep. And from then on, 
we provide support. So whether it's awareness and knowledge of the disease or emotional support, someone to talk to, explaining to your friends and your family, um, for children, explaining to teachers how to manage yes. it, um, and, mm. and obviously the classmates to understand what, what's going on. So that whole patient journey from the time that you diagnose to your life with, with HAE, we're trying to provide as best we can a support structure for yeah. patients so that people don't have to get to like you and I have been through where we feel like we've done this all alone and it is so much you know HA is never it's never going to be a great thing to live with but it can be easier if you have support yes and I can attest to that firsthand because you have been incredible for me and I am so absolutely grateful that you know I met you on that group thank you I also wanted to ask you, so is Rare Diseases South Africa, the work you do with them, is that se- that's a separate um, organisation? Uh, yes, it is. Yes, it is. So Rare Diseases South Africa is an umbrella organisation that there's 200, they've got actually over 200 uh, uh, Rare Disease member organisations that belong to them. And they represent all rare diseases in South Africa, which, you know, when you come from a small group like ours of 104 and you join a big group like that, the, the louder your voice is, the, the, the more you're going to be able to be heard. So rare diseases South Africa concentrate on also uh, putting patients into contact with patient support organizations. So if a patient goes to them, they will then obviously refer them to to us. If they have HAE or any other rare disease, they'll send them to one of the other patient organizations. They also do a lot Mm. of lobbying uh, for our government to try and increase healthcare. We have a lot of inequality in our healthcare. And there's a lot of things that don't get funded, especially the rare disease stuff, because it's expensive. So yeah, Rare Diseases South Africa is actually a, a, a umbrella group for all the small rare diseases in the country. Okay, wow. Man, you are just one amazing woman. Thank you, April. <laughs> you, are, you are such an angel, honestly. Thank you. Is there anything else that you would like to promote or discuss that um, I may not have covered? Um, no, you know, I would, I would just like to say that I think that um, uh, just to reiterate that you can have a normal life with with HAE, and that you need to empower yourself. Patients need to get all the knowledge and and information they can. They need to find support, and unfortunately, that doesn't always come to you. You need to yeah. work as you did to go and to go and find those things. But I think that it's important for patients to know that you can have a normal life, and that you can be happy. I'm happy after all of this time dealing with this I'm happy oh that's amazing and you are amazing honestly well thank you so much for your time today Janice and I am honestly I think I've said it so many times but so grateful to have met you I'm honestly glad that um you know you were the person that came to support me when I first uh was finding support in that group and I can only imagine that the HAE South Africa community is honestly so lucky to have you advocating for them Thank you, April. I appreciate that. Thank you very much. And of course, thank you to our listeners for joining us on another episode of the Healthy AF Podcast, hosted by me, April Love. Please don't forget to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, CastBox and Google, and stay tuned for the next episode.